Heath Morrison is the CEO of Teachers of Tomorrow, a very important and vital organization who is fortunate enough to be led by someone with vast experience who cares deeply about students and teachers. Heath and Jeff delve into the relevant and critical topic of teacher shortages, what is and what is to come. Their discussion analyzes the current status and conditions impacting the problem and delves into brainstorming future solutions. Every educational leader should listen to this. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chats. And I, I can guarantee this, that um, as most of you are in the education space, many of you leaders, there's likely not a more relevant topic as this one. Because what we're talking today is this ongoing dilemma that we are currently facing, but we're also promised to face over time. And um, fortunately, I have an, an incredible uh, guest, a great friend and a colleague in this work. And, and he is perfectly positioned to not only talk about this, but also lean into solutions on the topic. And you'll see exactly why, because today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Heath Morrison, who is the CEO of Teachers of Tomorrow. Now, Morrison, and like I said, he and I have known each other for a while. He brings to Teachers of Tomorrow over 30 years of educational experience in both the private and public sectors, having worked as a teacher, principal, superintendent, and corporate executive. After being named AASA's National Superintendent of the Year in 2012 for his turnaround of Washco County School District, one of the largest in Nevada, and then later the superintendent of Charlotte-Mecklenburg in South Carolina, Morrison spent six years in a variety of leadership roles at McGraw-Hill, including serving as the Senior Vice President of Education Policy and Government Affairs, Chief Sales Officer, and ultimately President of McGraw-Hill's 14,000, excuse me, 1,400 People K-12 division. And then in 2020, he Morrison joined the Montgomery Independent School District, a suburb of Houston, Texas. So maybe he was just bored in 2020 and decided to try something easy and become a superintendent again. That's clearly a joke. And, um, and then after that, just recently joined to lead Teachers of Tomorrow. And so the concept that we're discussing, which is clearly issues of teacher shortages, but more specifically, what we might do to solve and remedy that over time. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to the screen, Heath Morrison. Heath, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Jeff. It's uh, it's great to reconnect, and uh, you know, it's one of those things. Especially going back into the superintendency, I like to say I'm probably the least intelligent person you're going to have on one of these shows because, uh, as COVID hit and most people were bailing out of the superintendency, I decided to jump back in and uh, had a wonderful, wonderful experience, and uh, appreciated the the work that superintendents all across this country do on a daily basis to make a difference. So I, I read this much of your bio. So I hope our listeners maybe get to know you a little bit better. Describe maybe some things either I missed or help them kind of see between the lines on, you know, who you are, what drives you, and maybe your current why that serves as your daily motivation. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. I have had such an interesting and amazing professional career, but it really kind of goes back to how I first uh, uh, was growing up and how I entered into public school. I 
I did very well initially. Uh, there was even an opportunity where my parents were brought into the principal's office to say, hey, we might want to skip Heath a grade. And, and so that was the first time my parents and myself were, were having a conversation about being the first in the family to go to college. Mm. And, and a series of things happened. My dad was in the military. We ended up going to a different school in a different country. And uh, that was not a great experience for me personally. So by the time I got back, I was actually behind. And so I became that, you know, one of those 1.3 million students who are on a pathway to drop out. Uh, but there were two amazing teachers when I went to Fairfax County Public Schools in, in Virginia that took an interest in me. They didn't have to. They, they saw this angry facade and decided they needed to do something to rescue this young man. And they got me back on a pathway. They got me caught up. They uh, by the time I hit high school, I was back taking honors and AP courses. I was the first in my family to go to college. And I'd like to say I, I wanted to pay them back by deciding I was going to be a teacher. I actually got accepted to law school. I was going to try to change the world through law, but I had taken a lot of education courses when in college because they were the only classes left. And I had the lottery luck of being the last to go in and choose classes. I kind of liked them. And I said, you know, uh, this, these are interesting classes. Hadn't thought about being a teacher, but uh, decided I didn't want to go into law school immediately, rack up a lot of debt. So I would stay at home with mom and dad, teach for a year and then go back to law school. And, uh, just never did. I got into the classroom. I found my passion. It was such an amazing opportunity to work with students and to really impact their lives. I sometimes, Jeff, you will appreciate this, think I might have been a better superintendent if I'd gone to law school, uh, but I've never regretted my career path. It's been an amazing opportunity to be a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, spend some time in the uh, private sector with educational uh, organizations. But uh, just that drive to make a difference to really in some ways pay back those two amazing uh, educators who made so much of a difference in my life so you know you you had you had made light earlier on on my joke of 2020 when you know you got this bright idea to jump back into the superintendent position yeah. probably at the most difficult time ever in our history by the way i i left the superintendent seat in 2019 so um yeah. and I, and i haven't been back so you're yeah. you, you swang back very intentionally maybe because you either missed it or you felt guilty about not being on the front lines i'm not sure what it was but maybe walk us through that because that was a very bold and actually a noble move. And I, I want to know more about it. Yeah, you know, well, I, I'm not sure my wife thought it was a noble move. But, you know, <laughs> I, I married my high school sweetheart, so you know how much she loves you when, when he says you want to give up this job that's really good and it's uh, and it pays the bills and you want to go back into a superintendency. But it really was, Jeff, you understand this. It was that it was that drive. It's that mission. It's that passion. Uh, when COVID hit, I, I just felt like, was I doing enough? Was I, I, I care so much about public education. It has been such an amazing part of my life. And to watch so many people, teachers and administrators leaving the profession, I just felt like I needed to go back. And, uh, you know, we're all a product of the relationships we build. And so I have this amazing relationship with the former state superintendent here in Texas, Mike Moses. And, and I just happened to say, Hey, Mike, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about going back. What do you think? And the next thing I know, he calls me and says, there's this wonderful opportunity. And uh, I, I found myself back in, back in the seat and with an amazing board, uh, a phenomenal community. And I'm super proud of what we did. It, it was my third superintendent, but it was actually a whole new learning experience because at time, Jeff, you know, when we come into 
uh, a new school district and you have your entry plan and you're going out and you're meeting the community and you're trying to introduce yourself and you're listening to understand and first be understood, then uh, listen to uh, understand, then be understood. Uh, and it was all during a time of social distancing, uh, a lot of it done through technology and Zooms. So it was a totally different way to, uh, to come back into a public uh, educational leadership position. But uh, I was really, really proud of what we accomplished. Uh, again, amazing board, uh, phenomenal employees. We got kids back into school and our school district really did not suffer the COVID learning loss that so many school districts did. And uh, again, it was just a tremendous tribute to some really, really phenomenal folks that I got to work with. It's it's awesome, and I I will tell you I can. Well, I I may sound like I'm teasing you for for making that move. I, I I do get it. I think that even even my job where I get to live vicariously through educational leaders throughout the country, and yeah, I still at times, especially when times are difficult, there is this yearning, right? There there's something about uh, there's really nothing like the position for where you have an incredible and immense responsibility but in the meantime you're 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 so needed and you're needed to do this incredibly noble work of leading a community and impacting kids and so i i understand like the pull back into it i really can relate to that but but now you've just you know kind of stepped into this um, th this new position, which has incredible promise. Not just not just for you, but more for the organization and specifically for this looming dilemma. So maybe you could just tell us about Teachers of Tomorrow. I mean, so you know the organization, the structure, the mission, etc. If our listeners um, are hearing this for the first time and they don't know of Teachers of Tomorrow, what do they need to know? Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It's, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, being a superintendent is if you do a reasonably good job, you get lots of opportunities and other educational organizations, other superintendencies. And having been in the private sector, I was I was getting lots of calls and, and, and you always are very grateful about that. But it was really easy for me to say no, I'm really dedicated to what I'm doing. I'm, I'm super happy. There's more work to be done. When this opportunity came along, it was one of those things where I went home and I and I had to have another one of those conversations with my wife and and, and she said, I get it. Um, because at the end of the day, as I look at education, there's so many different things that we're all trying to do to make it better. You know, how can we structure and organize? How can we train our employees in a different way? How can we leverage technology? What are the ways for resource allocation to make a difference? But everything we're trying to do to make education fundamentally better and make sure that we're fulfilling our commitment to each and every student that we have the honor or privilege of teaching is putting a high quality teacher in front of a class. And that's been true since the uh, dawn of public education. It will always remain true. And we are in this moment today, Jeff, where you and I would get together 10 or 15 years ago and say, wow, you know, there's not as many quality candidates for teaching positions as there used to be. And then we would start to have the conversation of, there's just less candidates than there used to be. We are in a situation today where there is a national teacher shortage crisis. And I don't use that word very often as a leader, but it is a true crisis where uh, there are so many vacancies and the demand is immense. The supply is low and getting worse. And so the opportunity to be part of an organization that is trying to address that was just something I felt I needed to do. So Teachers of Tomorrow, is the largest alternative certification program in the country. 
Uh, most people are familiar with university programs. You go to college, you enroll in ed school, you do your student teaching experience, and then you go out and you become a first year teacher. And that's served us very well for many years. But because so many uh, schools across the country that prepare students are actually declining in enrollment and have been for decades now, uh, that they simply, there are not enough university uh, trained teachers to meet this moment. So for example, in Texas, 55,000 new teachers were hired in our state last year only 17% came from traditional higher ed programs. And that's not atypical across the country. So a lot of states allow for what's called alternative certification programs where uh, you have the ability, as we do at Teachers of Tomorrow, to offer a quality online program. Uh, you also provide test preparation, and then you also work with the candidates to do field-based experience. And then you can get an individual into the classroom, uh, depending on what their desire and how quickly they want to get in, uh, usually within a year into a classroom. And then that first year as an intern, they are actually getting a teacher salary. So it's not like we're asking them to do a student teaching experience where this is a career changer and they've got to figure out how am I going to go, you know, three months or six months without yeah, sure. a teacher. They go right into the classroom. And then uh, it's an opportunity for them to add to the teacher ranks at a time when they're desperately needed. And, and what I've always loved, as you know, Jeff, as you did, uh, leading mostly large urban school districts, uh, there's two things that really have always appealed to me about ACPs. The first is that uh, these individuals come having worked as professionals. They have uh, graduated from university, they've gotten into a job, and their job just doesn't bring them passion. I'm a pharmacist or I'm a banker. Or I work a desk job and it just doesn't bring me joy. And then they start to say, you know, I, I'm kind of intrigued by teaching, but I don't have time or money to go back to a university prep program. So this is a way to get these individuals into the classroom who have work experience. They're teaching math and they've actually used the Pythagorean theorem or they're teaching how to write and they work at a newspaper. I mean, how amazing is that? in terms of the way that they could add value into a school and a classroom. And then the other part that I know you appreciate because it's a passion of yours, it's definitely a passion of mine, is as a large urban school district superintendent, I would look at the teachers we have, and you know, you always are so grateful for the teachers that you have, but I was always troubled that often they did not reflect the diversity of the students that we have the honor and privilege right. of teaching. And so when you look at how many students are of of diverse backgrounds in traditional higher ed preparation programs, it was never going to be anywhere close to what we needed. So in an alternative certification programs like Teachers of Tomorrow, I can be very intentional with my uh, individuals to reach out to organizations, reach out to communities, bring more diversity into our program, thereby being able to bring more diversity to schools wanting to hire a more diverse group of teachers. And so uh, those were all the reasons I just felt that um, as much as I did not want to leave my current job as a superintendent in Montgomery, Texas, I felt like I had to do this. Well, I, I once again, I said I could imagine the the draw back into the superintendency, but also this only because over the past couple of years, um, actually just kind of studying it from afar, and, and we have, we've done several leader chats on this topic. You were actually here at our facility for a summit we recently did where we had some think tanks, some professionals from around the country leaning in and going through a protocol and trying to tap the collective wisdom of the room on this particular issue. And so, um, number one, it's an issue now, but it also promises to be a challenge in the future. So you called it a crisis 
right? Yep. And I think, um, by the way, I, I I don't think that's exaggerating, but maybe let, let's let's help people understand why it's a crisis. So, we, by the way, for a long time have talked about teacher shortages, right? It's always a big deal, especially in large districts, on when you start that first day of school. Have are you are you at capacity, right? I mean, it, it takes. The lion's share work to get at capacity where you're filling your classrooms, prepared to have great teachers in front of students. But that was that was then. This is now. And we've gone through incredible turbulent times in education. And it is impacting this mass exodus from teaching and to your point, a shortage in terms of pipeline. So help, you know, you you know more than I, so help our listeners know why is this such a crisis? You mentioned Texas, but let's go beyond Texas. Yeah, so nationally, uh, the research suggests that by 2025, uh, you know, we're not talking 10 years, 15 years down the road, we're talking just in a couple of years, there will be over 300,000 vacancies across the country. Uh, this year, it was reported that over 87% of schools opened up school with at least one vacancy. Uh, when you look at some of the large urban school districts across the country, uh, there were situations where they were filling up to 1,000 to 1,500 uh, classroom positions with long-term subs or what are called uncertified teachers. So these are people that, again, graduated from college. They can pass a clean criminal background check, but they have had no preparation, readiness, training, or no ongoing support, and yet they're going right in front of a classroom to try to teach. Um, that uncertified challenge, Jeff, keeps me up at night. Uh, I will come back to Texas because out of the 55,000 teachers that were hired new in our state last year, again, 17% came from higher ed. About 18% came from alternative certification programs like Teachers of Tomorrow. Almost 32% were uncertified teachers. And, and so these are individuals, again, who have no training, no support, uh, and they go into classrooms on day one. And this research suggests that about 77% of them will not return for another year of teaching. So when you think about that, there's a couple of things, again, why I call it a crisis and it keeps me up at night. Number one, uh, these are individuals who express some capacity and desire to teach. And yet, because they enter into a profession uh, that requires so much training and so much preparation, and they're just getting thrust into the classroom, they're deciding not to return. So these are individuals that had an interest, but because we didn't help prepare them and support them, they're not coming back. Eventually, we're gonna run out of people who are even uncertified who will be able and available for teaching. The second thing that really troubles me, and Jeff, you know this, um, the majority of those uncertified teachers are not finding their way into the more affluent communities and schools across the country. Right. The reality is, is that they are going into our poor schools they're going into our Title I school. So in essence, the students who need the most trained, prepared teacher are oftentimes now getting the least prepared. And so as we start to look over the next couple of years of how that's gonna impact student achievement, it, it's again, very scary and very troubling. And I think the third area that really, uh, keep, again, keeps me up at night when I call this a crisis, we are trying to get people to understand why teaching is such an amazing profession, why it is a profession that uh, should be celebrated and honored and revered. And if the message across our country is you don't need any training, you don't need any support, you just walk in, we wouldn't accept that in the legal profession. We wouldn't accept it in the medical profession. 
And really, if that becomes standard that anyone can walk in from the street and do it with no training, no support, no background, then what you're really saying is it's not a profession. And I, and I think that's 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 really hard for our current teachers who are out every day doing heroic and heroic work uh, to hear that that's really become the standard. So it, it really is a crisis and it just it's going to continue to get more challenging because the enrollment in ed schools continues to decline. We're seeing teachers leave at record rates. And so the, the, the supply of teachers needs to increase because the demand is going to continue to increase. So it's, it sounds like, look, we, 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 have a, we have a narrative issue, don't we? Right. So we have, uh, we have, we have this, you, you're, at a, you're at a party and you're having a conversation about a teacher shortage and everyone you talk to is going to come up with their different reasons as to why they think there is a teacher shortage. Right. Someone's yeah. going to say, well, of course. I mean, do you know what we pay them? Uh, somebody else would say, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal work and it's getting way worse. Kids today are not like they used to be. I mean, over and over. And then, by the way, post-COVID, what would we expect? Right? I mean, all of these different answers as to why the job um, isn't what it should be, nor do they get the support. And then to your point, we're just adding another narrative dilemma of, and we're willing to take some people that are not trained nor yet, quote, professional, and put them in front of students. So we've had a narrative problem, but also sounds like we're creating another one via this. So if that is the case, if we have this, um, you know, this narrative issue relative to the job, which clearly is not drawing the kind of pipeline we need, what do you think are some remedies for that? You know, I, this, it's been something, Jeff, I spent many, many years thinking about. I was superintendent in Nevada and I was talking to a group of business leaders uh, and we were talking about the support of public education. And at one point, this is a room full of a thousand individuals. And, and I asked the question, if your child came home and said, mom, dad, I'm going to be a teacher. I said, you know, let's all be honest. Raise your hand if you'd be proud about that. And out of a thousand people, maybe five or six raised their hand. And this was, and this wasn't, this is a ways back. I mean, this isn't this, yeah, just, you know, I, I, this is like over 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and then I said, um, you know, what if uh, a person raised their hand and said, well, what if it's TFA teachers uh, teach for uh, America? And, and then a couple more people raised their hand and I said, why does that make a difference? And I'll never forget Jeff, what the individual said. They looked at me and said, well, Dr. Morrison, that means they'd only have to do it for two years. And so when you think about the implications of here's this profession that everybody gives lip service to, everybody says how important it is, and yet you wouldn't be proud if your child told you, mom, dad, I want to be a teacher. And Jeff, to the points you raised before, we have underpaid teachers for years. And we talk about why it's important to, to do something about it, and yet we keep talking about it and we don't do enough uh, to really uh, address that. In professions, what we value, we, we, we compensate well. And then we also reward the profession in terms of training, not, not like, you know, one and done training, not, uh, you know, training that's not related to the job. We, we honor the profession by giving people real-time training that's personalized to their needs and that's ongoing. We build capacity. We create career lattices so people see growth that they don't have to be an administrator. Uh, they can stay in the classroom and yet still enjoy growth. So there's so many ways that we could really change the narrative around teaching. 
But, you know, we really have to look at when we always talk about these international comparisons in other countries, there is a reverence for teaching. There is a respect for teaching. And until we get that changed in this country, we're going to continue to have people somewhat hesitant to enter the profession. Well, we know through polling information, too, that educators themselves are no longer recommending to their children to be educators. Right. And, and the vast majority are not. And they're educators. Right. And so, you know, you were asking a, a room likely full of, you know, business and community members. Even who if care were, about education. I mean, care about education. Supporters. Of course. And even if they were your teachers, the majority yeah. of hands still would not be going up. Right. Once again. Um, so th that being the case, you and I both in kind of preparing for this conversation, we were talking about the, this, this concept of opportunity culture, right? And yep. in, in, with that in light, what are some of your thoughts and recommendations to systems, you know, school districts, um, whether they're, you know, public, charter, private, et cetera, to th consider internally – um, as obviously they can't just hold their breath for an external solution. Yeah. What are some of your recommendations for them specific to not just narrative, but attacking the very pragmatic dilemma of needing teachers working face-to-face -face with kids? Yeah, Jeff, it's such a great question. And, and since taking this position, I've spent a lot of time visiting with colleagues, superintendents all across the country. And I think what they're starting to realize, and it's so different, Jeff, than when we were superintendents, where our HR people would go out, they hit all the job fairs, and then in larger school districts, they would start to utilize uh, alternative certification programs like Teachers of Tomorrow. And they kind of always found a way to get most of those vacancies filled. I think what superintendents and HR directors are starting to realize is that they can't just sit back and wait for candidates to come they are going to have to be part of creating that pipeline. And so uh, with our, our company, it, we very much have traditionally been a B2C model. We, we, it's like we have a big funnel. We try to get people excited about teaching. We put them through our program. We do a lot in terms of quality. We get them ready, and then we make them available to school districts to hire. We're having to change that now to also do more of a B2B model. And so we go out to the districts. We start to talk to them about how many vacancies are they anticipating and in what areas. How do we work together collectively to create that pipeline? So it's one thing for me to get on a radio in a, in a large area of Texas and say, hey, be a teacher. Here's all the reasons why it's great. It's a different situation to have the superintendent of that community saying our school district needs you. And then how quickly can we work together to, to create a solution that is customized to that school district that will meet the needs that they have for their children. Uh, but that realization that they're gonna to have to be part of creating that pipeline because it's not, those candidates just aren't coming. And so whether it's creating more capacity and interest with students through a different student programs to think about becoming teachers, whether it's working with programs like ours to get uh, substitutes and paraeducators trained for the classroom, uh, whether it's to help support uh, teachers who are teaching in one area to be certified in another, all of those things are things that have to be brought to scale. I think additionally, even that's probably not going to meet the moment. And so how do you start thinking about things like opportunity culture, which is a wonderful initiative where it's really how do you organize around the talent that you have? Because the usual model is if I have 100 students in third grade, I'm going to have four teachers and each one of them is going to have about 25 students. And 
that's somewhat of an antiquated model. So can we better leverage a master teacher who maybe teaches more students and then we lower the class sizes for the other teachers or we actually have that master teacher working with the students who need a great teacher the most. Uh, and so they met master teacher might only work with 10 or 15 students, but then you redistribute the others to the other teachers. It all requires organization, all requires training. But again, we just have to think out of the box on this. And then obviously the advent of technology, you know, there are opportunities where, you know, in high school, sometimes you have 10 kids taking AP physics in one high school and 10 kids in another uh, high school in the same district taking AP physics. Can you use technology via Zoom or Teams to have a teacher teaching uh, 20 or 30 students via technology? I, I worry about that a little bit because teaching is still such a, you know, such a human endeavor. There's a, there, you need to build rapport, care, uh, empathy, and that's a little difficult to do over technology. But again, technology has to be part of the solution. So we just have to think out of the box and it can't be the way we've always done it because that's not going to meet this moment. So let's 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 kind of uh, unpeel this concept of innovation a little bit. And I, I will say I'm, I'm really thankful that you talked about the leader, let's say superintendent in, in what you just described, being the one to go to the community to describe the, the needs. But yeah. recently in a conversation with other superintendents on this topic, um, one, one person said, you know what we're doing? We're doing a lot of whining about it. There's a lot of complaining, right? Because it's a legitimate vent. And so everyone agreed around the table. And it was somebody else who said, what, what, what good is that doing us? Us trying to explain the problem, just explain it over and over and over as to all of the excuses as to why we're having these challenges does not move the ball down the field. Leaders are going to have to somehow own the problem and then therefore the solution to make progress. Right, is whining will not help us lead. And leaders, to your point, need to start thinking maybe a bit differently because as you know, school districts, I know, we're organized in boxes, right? The classroom yeah. is a box, the bus is a box on wheels. Everything is aligned to the teacher, the students, the classroom, the entire infrastructure. We may have to change the infrastructure a bit for this to meet the needs of this dilemma, don't you think? Jeff, I, I'm in violent agreement. And I, I think really it's a shift for educational leaders, especially superintendents. The superintendency's always been a political uh, uh, position, but I think it was a political position in terms of it's, I'm not gonna get proactively involved, but when I have to you know, uh, address a challenge, I need to know who are the stakeholders, how do I get something to happen? I think as, as leaders, as superintendents, I still think as a superintendent, still try to think as a teacher on special assignment, we've got to change that mindset. There's too many things that are happening at the federal level, at the state legislature, uh, and other national organizations that have some very interesting ideas about how to educate all students. And, and if we sit back passively, then we will continue to have things done to us. And I think as educators, as educational leaders, as superintendents, we have to take a more proactive role. We have to be advocates. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, as you said, it can be very complicated in how we explain things. Advocating for our children, advocating for all children, advocating for our teachers, that's like the easiest part of the job. And, and we sometimes advocate that because we don't want to upset the wrong legislator. We don't want something to impact our funding. 
I've been there, you've been there, but that's just part of the mind shift. And right now, part of the reason why we have a, a teacher shortage crisis is because we have talked for years about needing to pay teachers more, and yet we have not really been successful in having that happen. We have continued to see expectation after expectation roll down to the teacher level where so much of their time is spent on administrative work rather than what really brings them joy and teaching. And then when you look at what's happening today where there are teachers in some states who are petrified that they are going to have the wrong book in their classroom or they're going to <laughs> use some supplemental material that's approved by the state and yet then they're going to find themselves uh, being sued. And we can't sit back and say, we're going to support our teachers and be okay with that. And so, um, you know, I, I know the leader you were as a superintendent, Jeff, I think you know how I was as well. You know, we have to meet this moment and, and we have to be proactive rather than reactive. And again, the, there are many, many complicating issues in educational leadership. Advocating at scale and proactively for our children, for our teachers is not the hardest part of the job, but it is in some ways the most important. And you've already, even in the list you were giving us, Heath, before on maybe making some shifts in terms of how we do scheduling, um, in terms of exactly how we put the teacher in front of the student. In particular, we do groupings completely different. Maybe we need to completely revamp what we teach, right? Yeah. And, and maybe it's an opportunity to rid ourselves of some of the traditional models of what we teach, specific to knowing that we do teach a lot of things that may not be relevant to the future. Maybe our past, yes, but the future, no. So maybe how do we leverage technology just a bit to get, I, I use this as an opportunity? Studies. I taught social studies and math. I taught math because I needed to get hired. Uh, I taught social studies because I really loved it. And, and, you know, we would traditionally, as students, we got this quiz. I probably did it myself. I got a sheet of paper, list the first 10 presidents of the United States in chronological order that's probably still happening holistically across the country. And it is so silly because by the time I've asked you to take out a piece of paper, <laughs> fill up one through 10 and list the 10 presidents, any student who's got an iPhone can pull that. So why is that important anymore? Why is that a criteria of how well we're educating our students? Now, what's interesting is, do you, can you take the first 10 presidents and talk about the precedents that they set? What are the decisions that they made that still resonate today? Um, how can you compare and contrast leaders from the first portion of the United States history to leaders of today? That critical thinking, that's what's important and that's what requires a great teacher. Listing the first 10 presidents is, you know, anybody with uh, access to AI and, a, and an iPhone can do in a second. Well, by the time you asked me to take the quiz, I would have already created an essay on the topic, right? Because yeah. I've, I would have yeah. gone into to AI and I would have pulled a really impressive essay. They probably would have passed your course. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so um, we got a, a couple of things. Number one, um, we will kind of try to wrap up here in a second. But I, I think Heath, and I, I maybe I'll just do this as we're, as we're recording it to add some pressure. I think we're going to have to do this again. I mean, I think that what we may want to consider is um, over time, not immediately, but think about maybe a, a series of discussions with you as well as some others who are, are willing and interested in pushing the envelope on some new models and yeah. trying to figure out how we um, look for innovative leadership and how we also spread the message um, to help others kind of 
get through some of that, you know, political mess that it will create for them to create safety for leaders to do some things that are different. So I'm actually asking you right now in front of everyone else, will you come back at the right time so we can kind of dig in even a little bit deeper? Jeff, you're a hard person to say no to. So yeah. I, if you ask me to be there, I will be there. It's, okay. it's such a critical topic. And it's, uh, again, as I said at the beginning, there are so many things that we can come together and say, hey, this would make education better. This would drive a way to close achievement gaps. This would fundamentally alter how we educate students in reading. But every, every reform starts off with a proposition that we can put a quality teacher in front of a group of students. And again, that model has to change because that model that we've traditionally used is just going the wrong way. So uh, my organization, Teachers of Tomorrow, can play a role, but it's a broader conversation amongst educators, policymakers, and really across our country. Okay, so this is this is our, our final last famous question. As you know, because you've you've been here as we've done this, one our our motto we stole from my pastor, circles are better than rows. This is the one thing we do to push out content. But if you and I were to imagine we're around a table and there there are state leaders, there are superintendents, central office leaders, all the way down through principals, what would be kind of your drop the mic? last words of wisdom or advice for them? I mean, elevator speech, what would you want to leave them with? Yeah, so we in education are, we're always about future and possibilities. I mean, we really very much are a future business. And as we look at the students that we serve in public education, I think there is a lot of evidence that traditionally we have given the least amount of support to the students who need it the most. And as I look at trends across the country, especially with policy resource allocation, uh, that trend is not getting better. As a matter of fact, I'd make the case that it is getting worse. So how do we commit to this idea of a public education system that is personalized, individualized, and really meets the moment that we find ourselves in? And at the very least, if we can't do anything more, can we make sure that as a country, we stop giving less to the kids who need the most? And if we could just do that value proposition, we could fundamentally alter the trajectory of public education in this country. Heath, uh, I know that I appreciate you. And, you know, not, not just me, but the reason I asked you here is because I know others do and will as well. So thank you so much for your time. This will clearly won't be the last time we're talking about this discussion, but um, your time is valuable and we're fortunate that you were here with us today. Jeff, I appreciate it. And I thank you and your organization. You really are lifting up so many important topics and conversations and not just lifting them up, but helping bring solutions. And they're desperately needed. So I, I appreciate you and what you're doing so much. All right. Be well, my friend. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this won't be the last time we talk with ETH. So this won't be the last time we mentioned this topic. Um, it is challenging. It's daunting. It's real. And it's a crisis. And we have to come together and we have to innovate and we have to create some safety and, um, and we, have to, we have to help leaders lead specific to something as important as this. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, be well.